Amen. Well, today we pause, uh, or Mark pauses, I should say, and gives our full attention in the text to this gut-wrenching, brutal reality of crucifixion. And this morning we are going to focus on that. How important is the cross to Christianity? How central is the cross? Why is it important? Why does it matter? Why do we need the cross? What has it done for us as Christians? Theologians argue about this. Was it about the, the, the um, putting to death of darkness and sin and evil, the victory over all of those things? Or was it about atonement and substitution? Or was it about an example of servant leadership? What was the centerpiece of the cross? What was the purpose of the cross? John Stott, the theologian, he once said, the Christian community, that is us, is a community of the cross. We are a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross. And the focus of its worship is the lamb, once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, a Eucharistic community. The Eucharist is the cup of Christ, which we're going to take after this sermon. Ceaselessly offering to God through Christ the sacrifice of our praise and our thanksgiving. You could put it this way, the Christian uh, life or Christianity, the church, is to be a, a cruciform community. And cruciform meaning we are to take on the shape of the cross. Everything that we do in our worship expression and our confession and what we believe is shaped by, birthed out of this reality of our Lord on the cross. Do you think it deserves our attention this morning? I think it does. And the cross, at first glance, would appear to be something that Christians would be embarrassed about. Our Lord, naked, spat on, beaten, rejected, mocked for hours on the cross. Yet it was the Apostle Paul who said, for far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul the Apostle, the cross was what he boasted in. For Christians, it's what we boast in. We boast in this moment that, that the world does not understand. Why would you worship someone who would choose to die, someone who would choose to be mishandled and mistreated? And I think the answer to these questions we're going to find by looking closely at the details of the account that Mark gives us this morning of the crucifixion. The crucifixion, as you know, is in all four Gospels. Gospels, in that case, just meaning the accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's in all four. Mark is going to, to, to help us focus on certain details of the crucifixion. Now, you'll have to let me not mention all of the other details from all the other Gospels, because if we did that, it would take much longer. That's called harmonizing. We're not going to harmonize. We're going to focus on the details that Mark gives us. Because Mark, by the Holy Spirit, is trying to lead us somewhere in the way that we look at the crucifixion. And we need to follow his leading. We're going to look closely. We're going to look closely. We must behold today the man upon the cross. We must behold the man upon the cross. That's our goal today. So, Finally, after, what has it been, 10 months or so of Mark leading us through the story of Jesus' life and ministry, three and a half years with his disciples, we have seen much. We've seen Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the garden. We saw his arraignment uh, um, in the house of Caiaphas, his abandonment by the disciples. We've seen his denial by Peter. 
We've seen him condemned and beaten and mocked and tried and condemned by Pilate. We've seen him beat at the hands of the temple guards. We've seen the crowd turned him over and rejected him. And today, we're going to focus on the crucifixion itself. Now, the timeline of the crucifixion is actually very easy to remember because there's three sections of three hours, totaling nine hours. So from the time that Jesus goes to Pilate after he has his midnight illegal trial with the, the religious leaders, from the time that he goes to Pilate to the time that he stands before, or pardon me, from the time that he goes to the Sanhedrin to Pilate, 6 a.m. is when all that begins, roughly 6 a.m., So from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., that is the crucifixion, essentially. And it breaks into these three. The first three-hour set is Jesus before Pilate. It's when he's scourged and mocked and beat, and he makes the trek to the cross. 9 a.m., Jesus' crucifixion begins. They put him on the cross at 9 a.m. He spends three hours on the cross in the light, absorbing the worst of man's wrath, He spends the second second half of the six hours on the cross in darkness, absorbing the worst of God's wrath. First three hours in light, second three hours in darkness. And we'll see that this morning. And Mark, I mention that because Mark mentions it. He lets us know what time it is. It seems to be important to him to see how long Jesus is suffering and what's happening at the different stages. So let's pick it up in verse 15. I want you to remember here as we examine this that Jesus has already suffered much. Jesus is already exhausted. He's already been up all night. He's already sweat drops of blood in anticipation of the agony to come in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's already seen his disciples fail him. He's already been rejected and his disciples have scattered. He's already seen Peter's denial. He's already been mocked by the temple guards and beat profusely with a, 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 something put over his head and, and, and receiving the blows of the temple guards. So Jesus is already, if, even if just all of that right there, Jesus is already struggling. He's already having a hard time. But verse 15, now he's in the hands of the pagan Romans, the Roman guards. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, released for them Barabbas, we already looked at that, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Mark doesn't give us a lot of details as to what that means, that Jesus would be scourged, probably because, as we'll see, he assumes that the audience that would be reading this would be very familiar with what this term means. So let me explain it to you. What is scourging? What does it mean for Jesus to be scourged? Well, the Roman guards who were professional murderers, professional executioners, who had refined their brutality uh, from, from generations and generations of wicked and evil ways of seeing someone killed, they took a whip that had many leather strips on it. This was the scourge. And at the end of the leather strips would be enmeshed in those strips pieces of bone and pieces of metal embedded for the purpose that when the whip would hit the body, it would not just smack the body, it would rip flesh from the body. This was scourging. Most, or many, I should say, maybe not most, but many did not survive the scourging to get to the cross. Truman Davis, who we'll hear from, he's a physician, he says this, the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin. 
And finally, spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. As the whip comes down again and again, it goes from the surface skin into the arteries, and blood is everywhere. His back, his legs, his entire body would have been thronged with this scourging. And that's just the beginning of Jesus' torment. Then we get to the mocking, verse 16. And Mark gives special attention to the mocking of Christ, and I think we'll see why. The soldiers led him away inside the palace. Mark makes a note here. He says, that is the governor's headquarters, okay, the praetorium. And they called together the whole battalion. That is a cohort. It's one-tenth of a legion, so it would have been about 600 men. Now, I don't think all 600 are present here, probably just the ones that aren't doing other things, that aren't busy. It took four men in particular to crucify someone. We have three people being crucified, so this is probably somewhere around 12 men, maybe more. The leader of this would have been a man referred to as the centurion. The centurion was the chief executioner in this particular place. He would have been in charge. And I want you to note that. It's important. Verse 17. They clothed him in purple cloak. Purple was the most expensive color in that day. If you wore purple, it meant that you were either royalty or that you were well-off, important. So they clothed him in purple in order to mock his so-called importance. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, this is not so much just because it's sharp and it might stab into his head, but, but more so it was a mocking mechanism. It was a way to say, oh, look at this man. He's like Caesar. He has a crown. See, Caesar, on all of their coins, you would see a picture of Caesar. Maybe you're familiar with it. And he would be wearing this leaf-like crown around his head. It was made of the highest-valued gold foil woven together, and this would be worn by um, nobility, particularly by Caesar. So what they're doing is they're, they're, with their disdain for the Jewish people, they're mocking the king of Jews by making his own crown. Verse 18, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Now again, this is taking the typical hail that would happen for Caesar and they're repurposing it to mock Jesus. This is a parody of Caesar's salute of Caesar Victor Imperator. They're mocking Jesus and saying, this is the man who would, who would take on Caesar. This little Jewish beaten man who right now is unrecognizable from the blows on his face. And they were striking his head with a reed, that is a stick, and spitting on him and kneeling down in the homage to him. So this is just a big show for them. It's just a big play. They're just mocking Jesus. They're, rape, they're draping him in purple. They're putting a crown on him. They're pretending to kneel. They're spitting on his face. They're taking the stick and they're hitting him in the head with a stick, no doubt driving the thorns on his head into his skull, all in a, in a show of disdain for Jesus. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Note that. We'll come back to that. 
Why does, uh, why do they need Jesus, someone to carry Jesus' cross for them? Well, first of all, if you've seen the, the movies where Jesus is carrying the entire cross behind him, that's inaccurate. Jesus would only have been expected to carry the top of his cross, and the top of his cross was called the patibulum, um, and the patibulum would uh, basically be put on their shoulders, and then when they got to the place of crucifixion, they would take it and they would attach it to what was called the stipes. The stipes is where the legs would be attached. Now, why didn't Jesus carry his own cross? I think because he was beaten so badly, so brutally, that he couldn't. And this is not mercy on the part of the guards. Oh, no. Mercy would have been to let him die then. They want to see him receive the full weight of the crucifixion. So, looking in the crowd, they see a man who is in town from Cyrene, probably for Passover. And they... Uh, they did what they were allowed to do as Romans. He's not a Roman citizen. They pull a man out of the crowd, and he's instantly a slave. They say, you carry this. He was probably a person of color. He was from Cyrene. Cyrene is northern Africa. It's very possible that he was. Verse 42, or pardon me, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which Mark tells us means place of the skull. Now, Golgotha is taken from the Aramaic word uh, Golta, which means skull. And the word Calvary, which you've probably heard more often, Calvary's tree, Calvary is actually taken from the Latin Calvus, which means scalp or bald head. So we say Calvary, that's actually a, a, a way of saying Golgotha, place of the skull. This would have been a very public area. This would have probably been at one of the primary roads into Jerusalem. We know from Quintilian in 34 AD, he said, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. This was the purpose of crucifixion. It was to scare anyone that would think of defying Caesar and Caesar's rule. It was to make an example of this suffering. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is a narcotic of sorts to help ease the pain. Jesus is not interested in easing the pain. Jesus is not interested in any way in taking away the clarity of his mental faculties. He has work to do. He has planned to be here. He knows he's supposed to be here. He's focused all the way to the end. Every blow Jesus felt, he does not lessen it in any way. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Mark only gives us five words to describe the crucifixion itself. And you might be saying, why didn't he even give us more detail? It's a very simple answer. Mark is writing to an audience that saw crucifixion every day. He's writing to an audience that many maybe had friends or other Christians that had been crucified. See, this, this was written to the first century of Christians they knew what crucifixion was intrinsically. They'd seen it. They'd seen it many times. So Mark doesn't see the need in giving the details of the crucifixion for you and I, though. We need to understand what this torture device was that the Romans invented. We need to, to fully understand what took place here. So some thoughts quickly on crucifixion. Crucifixion was a weapon used by Rome to create fear and therefore control. Edwards, in his commentary, he says, every, total, every totalian, totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus. And crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus, ad horrendum, infamous alike for its infection of pain and agnimony on the victim. 
Cicero, in the first century, he was representing really a Roman, a Gentile. He says this about crucifixion. He said, crucifixion is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous manner of execution. That's how Cicero, in the first century, explained crucifixion. It was reserved only for non-Roman citizens, often slaves and the poorer class. Both men and women were crucified in those days. It was was common, and they were usually stripped and crucified naked in order to be the most possible uh, shaming that they could do. Now, Jesus might not have been completely naked because they had some respect for the Jewish sensibilities, so it's possible. We don't know. Now, I want to read for you what one physician Truman Davis says in regards to what crucifixion would look like from a medical standpoint. So if you'll allow me to read this. Simon, that's the one carrying the patibulum, Simon is ordered to a place, or sorted to place the patibulum, the cross piece, on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum, that's the, the upper piece of the cross, is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, the vertical beam, and the left foot is pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down, and a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails and the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. Remember, this is a physician explaining the crucifixion from a a physical standpoint. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the, the, I can't say this right, metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now in extremis, that is near death, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. This was brutal. 
If you weren't following that, he's switching off between the pain from the nails in his hands and his feet, between the, the pain of not being able to exhale. This was man's worst invention to cause pain and suffering, and Jesus went through it. Jesus went through it. Now, 20, 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. So as if it wasn't enough for Jesus to be enduring this pain, the guards are seemingly gambling at his feet as to who should get his garment. What a vile yet vivid illustration of anyone who would profit off crucifying Christ, anyone who would profit off the cross of Christ. These guys are only looking to gain maybe a few cents from Jesus as they watch him go through this agony. 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Notice Mark tells us it's 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. when they put him on the cross. Jesus' time on the cross begins here. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It was customary to put above the head of the, the victim what they were being uh, prosecuted for, what they were being punished for. Pilate chose to put the words, the king of the Jews. And we find out in the other gospels that the, the, the Pharisees are unhappy with this. They say, can we put, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I wrote what I wrote. And we'll see why, I think, in a moment here. 27, with him they crucified two robbers. So on Jesus' sides, we have the two thieves, the two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, Jesus at the center. Jesus being placed at the center would tell passersby that he was the chiefest of these criminals. This place was probably reserved for who? Barabbas. Barabbas possibly had some ties to these two. We don't know. 29, and those who passed by derided him. That is a severe um, condemning or, or judging or deriding, yeah? Wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who, destroy, who would destroy the temple, rebuild in, and rebuild it in three days. So people that are walking by, just people that have been in Jerusalem and have seen Jesus' ministry, they've heard this, um, this story about how Jesus said he would destroy the temple, and now they're mocking him for it, right? Of course, they misunderstood what he, what he was saying. Verse 30, he said, save yourself. They say, save yourself. Come down from the cross, 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. See, these guys see this as proof and confirmation that he was not the Messiah. Because if he was the Messiah, he would call down legions of angels, Elijah would appear, and he would not allow himself to be crucified. The only problem is they have their theology backwards. They're looking for the wrong type of Messiah. Isn't it interesting? This is a side note. Isn't it interesting how we as humans, we have this legalistic tendency to assume that if God is willing it, then God will, of course, bless it in the way that we think. Well, if he's the Messiah, then he wouldn't be on the cross. God would never put the faithful servant on the cross. Or would he? <laughs> or would he put his faithful servant on the cross? All things do work together for the good of those who love him, but not according to our version of good. So sometimes I think we, we miss that a little bit. Now they're asking Jesus to do the very thing Satan has been trying to get Jesus to do this whole time. Choose the crown without the cross. Remember in the wilderness, that's what Satan tempted him with. Peter even was controlled by Satan for a moment, and he said, 
No, Lord, he, he, he rebuked Jesus for saying he would go to the cross. They are joining in with Satan's procession saying, skip the cross, come down. But Jesus is listening to his father, right? So he stays on the cross. And what kept Jesus on the cross? It wasn't the nails. Jesus kept Jesus on the cross. He's choosing to be here by his own choice. It also says that those who were crucified with him, in verse 32, also reviled him. This is stunning. These two thieves on either side who are themselves barely gasping for air, going through the same agony that he is going through, find enough oxygen to mock the Son of God. What does that tell you about the depravity of humans when it comes to the authority of God? They manage to find enough oxygen to mock the one next to them. It's brutal. Everyone here has turned against Jesus. Verse 33, now we transition from the three hours of light to the three hours of darkness. You think that what Jesus has just gone through was the hard part? You're wrong. What Jesus just went through was hard, but many people were crucified. What made the cross unique for Jesus was not the physical suffering. What made the cross unique in, in, in the most excruciating pain ever, anyone has ever went through is not the physical suffering, it's the spiritual suffering. It's what Jesus is about to endure in the second three hours. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Picture this. Jesus is being crucified. We don't know why, uh, but the sun goes away. Total darkness for three hours. For three hours. Isn't it interesting, by the way, just a side note, that whenever God is about to unleash new creative, redemptive reality into the world, it's always dark right before. Think back to Genesis. Creation was formless, it was void, it was without light just before he created the sun and divided the heavens and the earth. Here it is dark just before Jesus is about to make atonement. And the eschaton and the end and the future, we're going to see total darkness before God bursts into the scene with light and recreates. Isn't that incredible? There's also an allusion here. My friend John Sled pointed this out to me last week. There's an allusion here to the Passover. One of the plagues of the Passover was what? Darkness. Jesus is, of course, the Passover lamb. Jesus protecting the firstborn of Israel, yet not sparing his own firstborn son here on the cross. There's a lot of reasons for this darkness, but ultimately the reason for the darkness is to picture that God has, what? Turned his back on the sun. That's what the darkness is getting us to see. That's what the darkness means. The father has turned his face away from the son. Why? Because the son is now becoming sin, as we will see in a moment. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Aramaic? Classic, right? Famous. We know this line. Why did Jesus say this? He said this to tell the audience that they needed to go read Psalm 22 because that is the first line of Psalm 22. There's a rabbinic tradition that you quote the first line of a psalm and it tells the audience that they need to go study the rest of that psalm. Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 22 and he's letting Psalm 22 speak for him. He's letting the psalms uh, he's letting the Psalms find the words, and the words are, I have been forsaken. God, why have I been forsaken? We'll look at Psalm 22 in a moment. Now, some of the bystanders heard him say, L-O-I, and they thought, he's calling Elijah. 
Jesus' face, of course, is disfigured. He can't get words out clearly. Um, and, they, and he's probably saying this maybe quietly. And one of the bystanders, probably not one of the guards, but one of the bystanders, it says in verse 35, hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. The messianic tradition was that Elijah would come and protect and come at the time of Messiah. So, so someone is, 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 has their interest peaked. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe he's calling Elijah. So he runs in verse 36 and fills a sponge with sour wine. Why? He wants to prolong the life of Jesus a little longer so he can get a show. What if Elijah comes? He put it on a reed and he gave it to him to drink, seeing saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus' agony, now absorbing the full wrath of the Father and absorbing the full wrath of man in total anguish, cries out one last time. And we know from the other Gospels what he says. It is finished. And he allows himself in this moment to die and breathes his last. In verse 38, don't miss it. It's the most important verse here. In verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the chief executioner, the Gentile Roman pagan who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Wow. (laughs) If we just closed now, it's profound. But we need to look closer. So let's stop here. Such a moving and stirring scene, but let's stop here and let's look closer. There's much more happening, I think, than first meets the eye. We need to ask the question, what is Jesus doing here? What is happening here in these moments that Mark is recording for? So let's take a closer note. I'll close with three realities that are far more than they first appear. There's three things here that are far more than they first appear. Maybe write them down. Here's the first. First thing is that what looks like evil's victory through man's debauchery is actually proof of God's total sovereignty. Say that again. What looks like evil's victory through man's debauchery is actually proof of God's total sovereignty. So any reader to Mark's gospel would know at this point who Jesus is. He's already been identified as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But as you're reading this, you have to see the irony in this passage. There is thick irony. And the irony is this. The irony is that man, evil, unregenerate, fallen man, is doing their worst. Their most evil. And every detail that they've put into this, how they pierced his hands, where they pierced his hands, how they beat him, how they mocked him, is straight from the mind of an evil, corrupt human being. Yet, what I need you to see here is how much truth is coming out of the mocking lips of Jesus' murderers. This has been called before the gospel of Jesus' enemies. Because everything they do and everything they say, unbeknownst to them, is true, isn't it? They put him in a gold, or they, they, they put a, a, a crown on him, they put him in purple. They give him a staff, we learn in the other Gospels. They, they kneel down to him. They call him king of the Jews. Even his own enemy, the centurion, proclaims he is the son of God. 
Is that an accident? Or is God the Father crucifying the Son by using man's worst evil? Here's my point. Here's my point. God uses man's worst to accomplish his best. Notice I don't say God causes man's worst. That would be wrong. God uses. He is using the creative debauchery of man here in order to accomplish salvation perfectly. I didn't stop to mention them along the way because I wanted to do it all at once. There is an immense amount of fulfilled prophecy here. Let me just list a few. By his stripes, we were healed. Isaiah 53, Jesus was beaten with stripes. He is bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 says. Jesus, of course, was bruised. He will be mocked and despised. Both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 say that. They will gamble for his garments. That was written down in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before the crucifixion. His bones will not be broken, Psalm 22 says. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 told us hundreds of years before he will be pierced for our transgressions and he will be numbered among transgressors. Now that's just a few. My point here is that everything happening in this moment is happening according to the plan of a sovereign providential God. Isn't that incredible? Well, what does this matter, Sam? It matters because you might be sitting here today thinking, my actions are too evil for God to use. The cross says no. You might be thinking, what I've done in my life is too heinous, too evil, too wicked, too bad. There is no way God can turn those things into good. There's no way. The cross says yes, he can. If he can take this moment and turn it into salvation for his people, do you think he can take your stuff and turn it in? What do you think, church? Yeah, I think he can. I think he can. And, and some might say, we will defy God's sovereignty. Some might say, we will not be used for the glory of God. The irony is that that whip was used for the glory of God. That the hands of the centurion and the Romans that crucified him were used for the glory of God. Everything and everyone will be used for the glory of God. Everything. Even those who do everything possible to avoid it. Are you with me? What looks like evil's victory through man's debauchery is actually proof of God's total sovereignty. Who is crucifying Jesus? The Father. The Father is crucifying Jesus. I heard someone say this the other day. I thought it was profound. In, in C.S. Lewis's line in The Witch in the Wardrobe, the question is asked, who killed Aslan on the stone table? Of course, the witch. No? No, you're wrong. It wasn't the witch that killed Aslan on the table. Who was it? It was C.S. Lewis. Think about it. It was C.S. Lewis that killed the lion. It was the author God the Father had decided that the Son would be slain before the foundations of the earth. Why? Because it was the only way. It was the only way for salvation to be accomplished. The second thing we need to see here when we look more closely is that what looks like, number two, what looks like forsaking is actually including 
and adopting. What looks like forsaking is actually including and adopting. I want you to see, just remember here, what Jesus is experiencing. What Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's doing is he's allowing us to see what, what the center of his suffering is. It's not the beating. It's not the crucifying. It's not the nails. It is this one fact that his father has turned his back away from the son. That's the suffering. That's the pinnacle of the suffering for Jesus. It is that he has been forsaken. You notice he doesn't say, my father, my father. Do you notice that? It's the first time that we know of where Jesus does not address God as Father. At least that I know of, he says, my God, my God. Why? Because in this moment, Jesus has become fatherless. He's been forsaken by the Father. He's been forsaken. He has become sin, and the Father has to turn his face away. God, why? Because God is holy, righteous, perfect. He cannot look upon sin. He has to turn his face away. This is the real punishment. This is the real pain of the cross, that God the Father is compressing all judgment on all human evil into three hours of darkness on the cross. And Jesus is now fatherless. Now, why is Jesus choosing to be forsaken by the Father? We have to ask that. Why is Jesus choosing to be forsaken by the Father? 2 Corinthians tells us, chapter 5, verse 21. Listen, follow me on this. For our sake... He, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That means that he did, not, he did not sin. He was sinless, but he became sin in that he took the full weight of sin's penalty on us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This has been referred to as the divine transaction. Jesus became fatherless so that we could become part of his family. It's a beautiful reality. But there's much more happening here than we see in this moment, and I need you to see this, okay? There's much more happening. What does Mark tell us happens at the moment that Jesus breathes his last? The, the last drop of the cup of wrath has been drinking, the drunk, and what happens? The veil is torn, right? Why is the veil torn? What does that mean? Why is the veil torn? We need to look at that. We need to ask that question. Why is the veil torn? And what does Jesus um, being forsaken by the Father have to do with the tearing of the veil? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Let me read it. Don't, don't tune out on me. Follow me. This is really important. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Can you picture that? Can you picture an anchor an anchor attached to your soul, however you see that in your mind. It's the thing that keeps us steadfast. It's the place on the shore that we look at when the waves are churning. It's, it's the thing that holds us tight. What is it? What is the anchor? The anchor is this hope that enters into the inner place behind the what? The curtain. Our hope is this or our anchor is this hope that has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone, past tense, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Let me try to make this simple. This is what's happening in the three hours of darkness on the cross. Jesus is going into the temple. And no, I don't mean the physical one. And no, I don't mean the one that Herod made. Jesus is going to the real temple. You say, what's the real temple? Well, we, we learn here that the temple that God told the Jews to make was a model. It was just a model. 
That's not to say God didn't really enter in there, but what it was is it was a replica of a heavenly reality. Did you know that? There's a holy place because in God's dimension, there's a holy place where God's throne is. And at in Adam's fall and sin, there has been a curtain put up between man and between God. There has been this curtain, this division between God and his creation that has uh, really for thousands of years existed. There has been a curtain. God dwells in holiness. He cannot have anything to do with anything that is unholy. So what we learn here in Hebrews is that when Jesus was on the cross, he went into the real temple behind the curtain and became both the lamb and the priest and was slain willingly. If this doesn't geek you out, I'm worried about you, okay? The second that the veil torn in the model temple, why did the veil tear? It tore because in the heavenly temple, the real veil came down. Isn't that incredible? That now God can save the nations. And what happens the second that Jesus drinks the last cup of wrath? What happens? A Gentile proclaims Jesus as Lord with high Christology. Behold, you are the son of God. Who is this pagan Roman? How does he know? How does he know Jesus is the son of God? I'll tell you how he knows. Because in that moment when the veil was torn, the presence of God escaped into the nations. And a Gentile is the first one to get it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? How we think about the temple, oh, the veil's been torn, now we can go in. No, 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 we got it backwards. The veil's been torn, the presence of God has escaped. And that's why in the book of Acts, the gospel explodes across the ancient world, transforming lives. It's the gospel that transforms lives. The gospel is this, that Jesus drank the cup of wrath and was victorious over sin and death and evil, and the presence of God has escaped and is saving. The Spirit of God is working in the nations. That's amazing. I'm excited about it. You guys excited about it? Good. You should be. <laughs> it gets better. What replaces the veil? Now, there's still a veil, right? There's people, we walk out the store, there's going to be people that don't love Jesus, don't serve Jesus, don't have Jesus living in them. So what's the, what's the deal with that? There's still a veil, but it's a new veil. You know what the veil is now? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, 19, write it down. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that's the new covenant, that he opened for us through the curtain. Listen, what is the curtain now? That is through his flesh. What's the new curtain? What's the new curtain? It's his flesh. It's Jesus. Jesus is now the way to the Father. There is one mediator between God and man. There is one door. Jesus is the door. The veil has been torn. It is open to all who would believe and have faith in the Son. The Son is now the veil by which we get to the Father. Isn't that incredible? So how do we get people in past the veil? We get them to have saving faith in Christ Jesus. That's what we're here to do. But it gets better. See, not only is this about inclusion, that the, the centurion now is included and, and can now profess faith in Christ, it's not just about inclusion, it's also about adoption. And I need you to see this, so follow me here, okay? I need you to see this. Jesus on the cross, he says, not my father, my father. He says what? My God, my God. 
So in this moment, Jesus is becoming fatherless for a moment. Why? Why is he becoming fatherless? Well, we find it in John 20. Go, go there really quick. John 20, verse 17. I need you to see this. John 20, verse 17. This is so important. So important. Why would Jesus choose to become fatherless? Why would Jesus let the Father or desire for the Father to turn his back on him? We learn it in John 20, verse 17. This is the moment where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. It's a sweet moment. Mary is concerned. Who took the body of my Lord? She's trying to find him. She's very upset. The tomb has been opened. She goes into the tomb, and as she comes out, there's a man there, and she thinks he's the gardener. Perhaps the gardener took the body. I'll ask him, do you know where they took my Lord? And Jesus says, Mary, right? And he says it in that endearing way that she's heard him say her name so many times. And it's the way that he speaks her name. She instantly realizes it's the Lord, my Lord. And she just runs into his arms, right? Like you would. And Jesus says this really interesting thing. He says, do not cling to me. And it's not to be cruel. It's not to be mean. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to who? Not my God. My God. Who? 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 The Father. I have not yet ascended to the Father. He's his Father again. He's, he's been forsaken, but only for a moment. He has a Father again. And it gets better. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell my who? Brothers. <laughs> what? It gets better. And say to them, I am ascending to my father and, what does it say? Your father. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? We are adopted now. Jesus became fatherless so that we could have a new father. And Jesus becomes our older brother in that way. We are now adopted because of him. And remember, I told you there's a reason why Jesus quoted Psalm 22. Here it is. Psalm 22, 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The same Psalm that Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You fast forward it to verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Adoption is why Jesus allowed the father's back to turn on him so that you and I could be adopted so that we could be part of the family of God. Ephesians 1.4 says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Romans 8.14, for, for all who are led by the Spirit are of God. Pardon me. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what, church? Adoption as sons and implied daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Isn't that great? We have a father now. Jesus allowed himself to be forsaken by the Father so we could be accepted. He took the wrath so that we could be adopted. It is this reality that has birth to the church. It is this single reality that thousands and thousands have chosen to die for Jesus because he was forsaken so that they could be adopted. It's this reality that we gather here for today. It is the fundamental foundation of the church. We are a cruciform people. 
we observe and are shaped by and changed by and transformed by the reality of Jesus on the cross. That God would not leave us in sin, but he would come and spend his son's blood for us. Isn't that good news? It's such good news. There's a third thing here I just want you to see. Number three, what looks like a chief executioner, that is the centurion, and an enslaved cross-bearer, that is Simon, actually become two portraits of real Christ followers. Jesus said, when he talked about his crucifixion, he said, a seed must go into the ground in order for it to die so that it can what bring forth fruit. Jesus' body has not been dead more than a second, and we already see the fruit of the kingdom beginning to spring up. We see it in the centurion. The centurion for us pictures and parabolizes. He pictures for us what saving confession looks like. And you have to ask the question, how did the centurion know that Jesus was the son of God? (laughs) How did the centurion know? And I think the, the, the most obvious answer is the spirit, right? But I think there's more to it. If you look a little bit more closely at our passage, what does Mark say? Verse 38 The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 39. And when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. What did the centurion see? What what did he see? Whatever he saw, it it was so profound that he instantly knew that Jesus was the son of God. I tell you what I think he saw. I think, first of all, he saw the way Christ suffered. This man didn't suffer like others. You think this was the first person the centurion had crucified? I guarantee it wasn't. Do you know how many people? I mean, he, he probably had crucified dozens, maybe hundreds. Something about the way Jesus suffered, how did he suffer? He suffered in a godly way and in a humble way, in a willing way. I think it was something about why Christ suffered. He suffered intentionally. The centurion, I think, could tell that Jesus was doing this willingly. I think it had something to do with the power that was manifested, maybe, right? The fact that it's black outside. The fact that it's dark. The fact that there's an earthquake happening. There's power confirming that something is different about this man and the way that he's suffering. And I also think it had something to do with the blood on his own hands when he looked down and realized that he killed that man. I think all of those things are necessary for saving confession of salvation. You need to see the cross. You need to see what it is. You need to see how he suffered. You need to see what he accomplished. You need to see the power of the resurrection that he backs up who the son is and then you need to look down and see the blood on your own hands. And I think that leads to a saving confession that this man is in fact the son of God. So the centurion I think for us parabolizes a picture of saving Faith. But there's this other man in the story, right? Simon. Simon the Cyrene. I think Simon is placed here to be a reminder for us of not just what salvation looks like, but what sanctification looks like, what the Christian life looks like. What does the Christian life look like? It looks like what Simon did here, carrying the cross. We are to what? Carry the cross. That's what the Christian life is. Jesus said, you need to come and pick up your cross. Simon pictures this for us. And there's this one little detail, and I'll close, that I think you need to see. It's the way that Mark introduces this character, Simon. Did you see it? It's the way that he introduces this character, Simon. He says, they compelled, in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, 
Okay, who's that? Oh, you know him who was coming in from country of the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know those guys. He, he says this as though they know who these two are. And interestingly, Rufus is mentioned in the book of Romans. At the end, what does that tell us? Put it together. What does it tell us? It tells us Simon got saved. And Simon's sons got saved. And they were well known to the church. This might be a stretch. But I think when you carry the cross, you are transformed by the cross. And those around you are transformed by the cross. Would you agree? Something about Simon witnessing the crucifixion, carrying the cross, led him, I think, to saving faith and led him and his sons to saving faith. And you might say, well, what does it mean to carry the cross? I think carrying the cross means that we share in his work. We do what he's doing. We get in tune with his story. It means that we share in his persecution if necessary. It means that we share in his footsteps, in his example as servant leader. It means we love what he loves, even if it costs us our life. And it means that we follow him like he followed the Father, even if it means death. That's what it means to pick up your cross. And Simon, I think, becomes a forever picture for us of the man who carried the cross of Christ. What a privilege that he was picked, chosen out of the crowd for what appeared to be a horrifying moment ended up becoming eternal salvation for him. That's such good news. So in conclusion, scholars have argued, what is the point of the cross? What's the goal? Is it, uh, some people argue and they say, well, it was about penal substitutionary atonement. It's about what I just told you, that, that God um, poured out his wrath on the son and, and that we, he gave us his righteousness. And they say, no, that's not the point of the cross. It's Christus victor. It's Jesus triumphing over Satan and sin and darkness and evil and crushing the head of the snake. That's the point of the cross. Others say, no, that's not it. It's Christus exemplar. Jesus was an example of the servant leader. He was an example of a suffering man. He was the example of one who followed by faith. And they say, it's one of these three. And I say, it's all of these three. Right? It's all of them. The cross for us is our example. The cross for us is our victory. The cross for us is our redemption. It's our atonement. And it is the metric by which the shape of the church comes to life. The church should look like the cross, a bunch of people ready and willing to suffer and serve and give our life away out of love for the Father. That's what church should look like. And that's why Jesus sat in an upper room and he said, do this thing a lot. This cup thing, this bread thing, do it all the time. Because I don't ever want you to forget what I went through. So we're going to do it today. Sound good? Okay. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do something that's totally culturally hated. And that is I'm going to give you five minutes of silence. And you guys probably haven't had five minutes of silence maybe in a year. I don't know. I don't get it very often. I'm going to give you five minutes of silence to come up, to get the cup, to get the bread. Don't take it. Bring it back to your seat. I want you to take a moment and pause and reflect on everything we've just looked at. And then in about three or four minutes, I'll come up and we'll take it together. Amen? Go ahead.